0: 6, verses 15 to 23. I need the screen because I'm using a translation that I do not have a hard copy of. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? Far from it. Do you not know that the one to whom you present yourselves as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of that same one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were entrusted. And after being freed from sin, you became slaves to righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented the parts of your body as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness... So now present your body's parts as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in relation to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. For the wages of sin is death but the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Yes. Let me have a seat. I'm going to join you. So we are going to start a new series this week uh, called Postures and Practices of Dependence. Last week, as you know, if, you're here, if you've been here a while, we are doing purposely a long, slow walk through the Gospel of Mark to encounter the life and teachings of Jesus and to get the full scope of what his life and ministry and teachings were about. And when we run into a story or a teaching that uh, we discern, we may need to sit in for a bit, uh, we stop there and do so. And so at the end of last week's story, um, Jesus uh, uh, casts out a demon that the father and the boy could not deal with and that the disciples could not deal with. And as he does so, he says, these kind that are, that is expressions of darkness, can only be overcome and cast out by prayer. So we talked a lot about dependent prayer. And so I think we need to sit in that for a bit because as humans in general, we struggle with the desire to be autonomous, to do things on our own. In a culture that is the wealthiest, most technologically advanced culture and most individualistic culture that has ever been, we're all the more tempted to control. And that's in the face of a world that seems a bit out of control. And so it may be good for us to sit in learning how to engage in dependent prayer. Uh, and that's all the more the case uh, for us as a church, given that we just came out of a really hard series on racial reconciliation, you all engage in that so faithfully, and but we're learning that that process is a long-term one that is filled with lots of temptation, and we need to be rem- remember that we'll do lots of actions, but they only count, they only kind of carry weight, they only keep us moving in the right direction, if they are flowing from a place of dependent prayer. And next semester, if you keep reading in Mark, we're gonna come to the next chapter, Mark, Mark 10, which addresses marriage, divorce, sexuality, romantic relationships, which of course is very complex. And if we're gonna engage in that with any level of faithfulness, it's only gonna happen with a spirit of dependent prayer. So we're gonna sit in that for a bit. And we're gonna have four straight weeks on dependence first, because otherwise prayer for people that are used to controlling things becomes another way to manipulate and control. Another way to leverage, to influence, to assert our wills. And so my prayer is that we talk about dependence for a bit first. Uh, not because God won't answer our prayers even when we're not. He does all the time. But it helps form us. Prayer is not just for God, it's for us. And we are more likely to be formed in the spirit-formed way when we approach prayer through a spirit of dependence. And so today the posture I want to talk about is surrender. Surrender. And to me, I think this is the linchpin of the rest of it. If we lose a sense of surrender, we lose kind of the core basis of our relationship with God, which is one of dependence. So this is kind of the breakdown. Nico's got us moving ahead already. We're going to have these four points here. We're going to talk about from this passage that no one is actually free. Everybody's surrendered. Everybody's a slave. No one is actually free in the way our culture describes it. I want to talk about how surrendering... Uh, in the two options we are given, to God or to sin, are both yields, benefits, and restrictions. Meaning, you will experience what feels like benefit if you don't surrender to Jesus. So what's important is, what benefits and restrictions do you get depending on who and what you are surrendered to? This is crucial. Then we're going to talk about the pathway of surrendering to Jesus. We're going to slow that process right down to talk about what that process will look and feel like in practice. And finally, the symbol of our surrender. So let's jump right into it. First thing is nobody is free. Everyone is surrendered. you got two choices here. Uh, Paul says to his letter to the Romans that uh, when you are a slave, you are either a slave to sin, resulting in death, or obedience, which is obedience to God, resulting in righteousness. No, there's no in-between. And know here also that there's not the most popular expression that we would imagine based on our culture's messaging which is just that we are all autonomous, free agents. Boundless, borderless, uh, non-relational, just totally individualistic. That we are free to become who we want to be, to do what we want to do, to uh, assert our our identities, to find our meaning and significance, that we are all free agents. And so that is the cultural messaging and the waters in which we swim. And you might think, well, if I'm in the room, Uh, You know, I'm a Christian, I'm already trying to resist that, praise God. But uh, I've been doing ministry long enough and I've been a Christian long enough that the waters in which we swim that affirm so much our sense of freedom and as a way of of freedom from all restraints, from all limitations. Nature doesn't bind us, family doesn't bind us, place doesn't bind us, church doesn't bind us, scripture doesn't even bind us. We kind of find our own way. Uh, That will intrude into how we relate to God and how we relate to Jesus. Um, it, it may, if you've been a Christian a long time, you may be good at uh, kind of pretending like you don't. But for new Christians, they oftentimes do. I remember one time uh, we led this uh, young girl to Christ at in my last church. Um, she was so excited to, to, to surrender to Jesus, to give her life to Jesus. And I'm trying to talk about what that would involve and how we approach scripture. And she was like, yeah, I like scripture. There's a lot of parts I agree with and, and some parts I disagree with. And so that is that mentality of freedom at work where you don't imagine yourself as coming under anything. There's no real conversion there. You are still the author of your life and scripture becomes a conversation partner. God becomes a piece of furniture in your life that kind of you find a way to fit into what you are already about and what you already desire. And that is a a common approach to life that then inserts into our prayer lives too. So to, to kind of tie it into the fact that we're going into prayer, a series on prayer, we can be prone to let prayer become a way that we advance in self-improvement, advance in self-discovery, advance in self-actualization. Again, no real conversion. There's no real transformation. But these are the waters in which we swim. Uh, Music, movies, cultural expressions uh, are are run amok to kind of communicate this message. And there even becomes a very popular deconversion story to walk away from Jesus as a way of becoming true to who I am. Even former pastors, will come out with an Instagram post of them overlooking the mountains and with the look of contentment on their face because they have finally discovered who they really are, the church, scripture, all of that has been oppressive to them, and they have found freedom to part ways with that. That, of course, came out of a long history of probably battling that within their faith. And so it's important for us to grasp this temptation of a false sense of I'm autonomous and free and grasp that Jesus would say, if you're not with him, you're against him. He says that. If you are not surrendered to him in purposeful trusting surrender and obedience, you are actually a slave to what he calls sin. And it may not always look as obvious as we would say. So we need to talk about that, what it would look like to approach life in that way, which is the next section. This will be the longest section of the thing. So if you're like, oh my goodness, we have four points and we're on point two, and he's been on this for 10 minutes, there's a lot to unpack here. And so what I want to try to show you is that when you surrender to sin, it is not always as obviously harmful and bad as sometimes you may have been told if you grew up in church. And actually, at the same time, it ends up becoming worse than you realized. So there's like a a, a kind of insidious harmfulness. And so all these words I highlighted in yellow, I highlighted because they're kind of churchy words that if you read scripture a lot, you will become very familiar with. But you may not actually think about the definitions you bring to the table when you read these words, and then you then ins- we then are insert our working definitions of these words, and then build out a whole kind of approach to this uh, freedom based on the definitions we insert. So let's start with sin. Think about how you would define sin, and for many people, even Christians, the way they would be tempted to define sin is something, as long as I I like it and it doesn't harm other people or me, it's fine. If it harms other people, that's sin. And so it's only if they detect that it harms somebody. So then there's no room for the possibility that there might be actual uh, not good behavior that that actually doesn't have a harm that you can see and detect on your own that is actually sin. As biblically speaking, I don't think sin is that which harms others, especially that we can see. Sometimes you can't see, it, and i want to show you that in a second. Oftentimes what sin is actually is an assault on God. It is a rebellion against God. It does harm you and others, but you might not always see that. So think about Eve in the garden. She's given one rule. And there's not any detectable harm in disobeying that rule. She says, that tree looks really nice. It looks good to my eyes. I bet it tastes good. It would actually make me a wise person. Therefore, I shall do it. There's nothing about it that looks like it would harm her or harm other people, but it is an assault on God. The core lie is, uh, I'm better at being God than you. Uh, I will do what I want to do. God, you're withholding something from me, and I shall take matters into my own hands. It's in a rebellion against God. It does harm Adam and Eve, and then our sin harms other people. But you don't always see the harm up front. It is first a rebellion against God, an assault on God, not whether or not I detect it harms other people. So then let's build that back up to impurity. That also very churchy word seems like it would be obvious. Well, actually, let me go back to sin real quick. So as an example of that, I want you to imagine... A, uh, I've used this example before with people, probably in the, even in this room, because I often refer to it. Imagine a young married couple, they've been married for three years, they have no kids in the picture, and they collectively, mutually, and simultaneously decide, I don't really like this. This isn't working for me, it's not working for you. We kind of made a mistake, we jumped into this too fast. Let's bail. They're mutually consenting adults, they made a choice that they don't want to do with this anymore, no harm, no foul. I actually really want to not be married to you convenient for you i feel the same let's go our separate ways we still have decades ahead of our life we can be done many people even you might think no sin there no harm no foul everybody's fine god will be gracious that's fine i think he will be gracious but i actually think that's sin because god hates divorce and would rather us not do it and he gives divorce as he says because of hardness of heart so there's a hardened heart that says i will do what i want despite what god says And then I will make that happen. I'm not saying there's no reason for divorce, especially when your spouse has been hard-hearted towards you. But I'm saying that thing looks like it doesn't harm other people, but biblically speaking will be sin because it is an assault on God. It is saying, I know what's best for me. God, you don't know what's best for me. Go back. So build that out then to impurity. Impurity sounds like it'd be bad, but it actually might feel really good in the moment. This is like, I will do what I want. It will give me lots of pleasure and dopamine rushes to my brain. It will feel good to, as I do whatever I do that is, that is on my terms. It is present kind of enjoyment. And lawlessness, too. Many of your versions will say ever-increasing wickedness. I didn't like that, because that then fits into uh, a wickedness I can detect. Putin is wicked. Hitler is wicked. Child abuse is wicked, and it is. But lawlessness, think about what that word actually, that's what it's actually the, the Greek says. It says lawlessness that gives way to more lawlessness. Lawless means I am beyond the law. I am above anything that would outside of me give me a restriction or constraint. It is unfettered freedom that when you give way to it, it goes on and on and on with more and more freedom because I'm doing what I want. I'm not bound by anything, which is much better language for the breadth of sin, not just being obvious harm that you and I can detect, but is I will do what I want to do no matter what. So again, imagine another scenario. Let's name him Ted from Lebanon. Let's hope None of y'all got family members named Ted from Lebanon. Ted from Lebanon is a hard-working, dutiful husband. He's been married to the same woman for 30 years. He's been a nice dad to his kids. He's an even tempered guy. He has the same job. He's generally a good employee. He's accumulating lots of money. His savings account is looking nice. He keeps his yard good. No neighbors have complaints of him. But he never gives an ounce of a thought to Jesus. No prayers, no devotion, no longings. He just does what he wants to do. It just so happens that what he wants to do is pretty socially acceptable, not immediately harmful. He does what he wants. He's actually lawless. Biblically speaking, he would be a slave to sin. He does not want to want Jesus. So he is living a life, appearing to be a good person, but gives no thought to Jesus. Now, the guilt-ridden people in this room would be like, oh, he's talking about me. No, I'm not, man. You're here. <laughs> You're giving thought to Jesus. I'm talking about a person that gives no thought to Jesus, doesn't care what Jesus wants. He just does what he wants. It's a lawless person, enslaved to sin. It is not harmful or obvious. His obituary would say he is a good person, but he's enslaved to sin. He's not surrendered. So then if that person comes to Jesus, and we know many people like this, Jesus can't tell this dude anything. Ted from Lebanon will come into a church and do what he wants. Some of you remember Ted from Lebanon from the churches you knew of growing up. They will leverage that place for power. They will do what they want there. The preacher says anything that challenges them, they are out writing a long email and will go do what they want because they are lawless. But you can't tell because they're not surrendered in the ways that we would uh, normally imagine. All these things seem like nice benefits because you are free and floating in the moment, but you are losing. I love this. Paul says, freedom in relation to righteousness. The Greek just says, you're freed from righteousness, meaning you don't have that. Now, some of your translations probably say, right living. That also totally is a worn down nub of what Paul's saying here. Righteousness is not about morality primarily, it's about relationship. I'm going somewhere here, man. you all like, oh my gosh, he's making me fall asleep with these Greek commentaries, but I'm trying to get you somewhere, and Romans is filled with these kind of words that we have to unpack. Righteousness is a relational term. It is God's righteousness in that he is in right relationship to his covenantal relationship with God's people. He has been true to his promise to his people, and when we haven't been, he's gone out of his way to make it possible for us to be in right relationship with him. We are in right relationship with his covenant. So righteousness has to do with our identity before God, our status with God, permanent belonging and safety with God and God's people. Now, of course, from that place flows an attempt to righteous living, but it flows from relationship, from belonging, from security, from being in God's covenantal righteousness. So then this person that is lawless head from Lebanon is freed from all that. He gets to be who he wants to be. He gets to assert his own identity. He gets to come up with his own sense of meaning. It sounds free. That sounds like a blessing. But it is actually tremendously anxiety-inducing, like crushing almost. And if you think about that filling a culture that says, I shall become my own. You can be all who you want to be. The only limitations on you are the ones you put on yourself. Go be who you are, find your community, find your belonging, find your meaning and significance, and go assert it. It sounds so freeing, but it is unbearably crushing, which is why we turn from that anxiety to all sorts of things. Mental health here is off the charts in harm. There's suicide is on the rise, drug addiction, violence. We act out from that anxiety from not feeling a sense of security. All is liquid. Even our relationship with God and with other people is liquid, where we can enter in and get out just as quickly if I so discover that these desires within me shift and change. It feels free. It is unbearably insecure. It is a crushing anxiety. It is not good news, though it sounds like good news. It is, man, that apple looks good to my eye. I bet it will make me wise. It crushes on the back end and brings shame. And in the end, leads to death, a loss of all things, no security in the future. It's so a I assert my identity in the competition of identities found on Instagram, and eventually it ends in death and loss. That is the outcome of what appears to be the free life, even when it's not so obvious. I told you it was going to be a long slide, but now let's flip to surrender to Jesus. There is a slavery of obedience, which we'll talk about. That is, you lose that sense of freedom. But look what you gain. You get that righteousness that you lost. So when I said all that stuff about belonging, identity, knowing who you are, knowing whose you are, knowing who your community is, having a sense of of significance, of meaning and value, having a secure future, that even if all the bad worst-case scenarios could ever happen to you and to this world, you have a secure, eternal relationship in God's covenant with God, with his people. And now you have that. all the things that were anxiety-inducing and crushing of our assertion to be who we really are, that anxiety is lost. You are permanently safe with God, with God's people, with God's family. And then you have this opportunity to engage in the meaningful life of sanctification. Another churchy word. God, when you are saved, makes you a saint. Paul, when he writes a letter to the Corinthians, they are awful people. If you read through the Corinthians, they have lots of mistakes. He calls them saints. God has made them holy by giving him his Holy Spirit. And then he goes to work in your body, making, reflecting that newfound holy status, which means Little old me and you, who no one seems to care about on the headlines, engages in an eternally meaningful life of letting our bodies slowly, with a lot of difficulty, reflect our status with God. That is now meaning where you didn't have it. That is a secure future when you didn't have that. That is a confident family that you you would not be able to have without your own labors and works. And that is finally, most of all, a, a pure relationship with God based on his work. And all this is free gifts. Not become who you really are. Go be who you really are. Assert to yourself. This is receive. It's yours. You already have it. He did all the work. You are not your own because you were bought with the price, and that price was the blood of Jesus. Has given you the security and the belonging you didn't know you needed, and you are now freed then from the consequences of your sin. You are freed from the power of that saying who you are, and now free to be not authentic to who I am inside, but who God tells me I am. You are my beloved child, and you I am well pleased. You then live out his delight over you. He gets to say who you are, not your fleeting and ever-changing desires from within. This is far less anxiety-inducing than the message of our culture. Now, it's still the waters in which we swim, so you're going to be tempted by it. But when we get tempted by that, we meet that temptation with the word of God that says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. That price is the blood of Jesus. And now you are safe with God, and God's covenant, God's people, and your future is secure with him. Your past, what you've done and done to you, has no more bearing anymore. That is surrender. But it does mean you relinquish that sense of I will be who I want to be. You actually do have to convert. You let you come under an authority that is beyond you. You let Scripture define those terms, not me. Well, my culture would say sin was harming people. Who cares? That's not what Scripture would say. That's not what Jesus would say. You disobey Jesus, that's what sin is, not just harming people. Well, you let Jesus determine what sin is and not you. Well, you let Scripture determine it. That's what we're talking about when we talk about surrender. So let's go to surrender in practice. So there's this process where we say, we hear this teaching, oh yes, I want to want that. What I, maybe that section I just said, you're like, yeah, man, I want more of that. I hate that I'm tempted against that. I want to want that. You then, from the heart, want to want that. That is what surrender is. Don't think of heart in terms of feeling. Think of heart in terms of volition, what your will is. I want to want Jesus in the gospel. That's obedience from the heart. I'm going to skip that purple bit and I'm going to come back to it because I think it's confusing. So then you go to work making your body parts. I love that he says this so frankly. It's talking about your body parts. That's literally what it says. You make your various body parts that you have some say over get in line with this newfound obedience to your heart. Now, again, the guilt-ridden people in this room go, oh, my goodness, my body parts are not doing what the heart wants, and now I'm not safe with God anymore. No, that's not what he's saying. You are safe with God already. You belong to Jesus. Paul imagines and expects there to be a gap between your heart, what it wants, and your body's ability to catch up. That's literally why he's writing Romans 6, because he expects the gap. That gap wasn't, doesn't say anything about your relationship with God. He's already forgiven that gap. But he's now empowering you to slowly with lots of stumbling, let those desires of our heart catch up to and be reflected in your body. What that means is our body is a sacred gift from God that becomes the physical space in new creation that my identity gets to slowly work itself out on. Your body is not just a neutral sack of flesh to let any of your old desires, do what they want upon it. Your body is a sacred gift of God, a part of you as God's image. It has a purpose and a goal and a direction that is built in the actual physicality of your body. And he has commandments and and exhortations to put in our bodies the practice of what we feel in our hearts. I'm trying to really break it down for us. So he then will hand us over to that choice. So now, this purple bit lots of different translations for it. Some of yours might say that you pledged allegiance to or to which you were committed. Let me show you from Romans 1. Go to my next slide real quick and we're going to go back. Oh my goodness, there's lots of text here. But Romans 1 has a great outline of how sin works. So what I want to show you is, pay attention to me, the yellow is the desire of the heart. The purple is that same word from Romans 6, God giving people over and the blue is the bodily behaviors. What Romans 1 describes is this repetitive sense of from the heart, people make a choice to not glorify God. It's an assault on God, and that's a desire from their heart. God then gives people to that choice. He hands them over to the choice that they wanted. That's an internal, an exchange of truth for a lie, and that involves a lust, a desire, and God gives people over to that choice. If you want to want not God, he hands you over to that choice. Again, they did not think it's worthwhile to retain knowledge of God, so God hands them over to their their mind's desires. And then, the result, they then do what ought not to be done. In the end of Romans 1, there's a vice list that is about this long, that has all the different ways in which these Behaviors will work themselves out. But it starts with, I assault God from the heart. God hears that choice. I'm not talking about I did it one time. I'm talking about a fundamental orientation that says, I want to not want God. I'll do it my way. God gives them over to that choice, and then that choice begins working out in their bodies. So now go right back to my last slide. That's then what's happening with this purple. Romans 6 is the great reversal of Romans 1 that wrath of God that is being revealed and has human beings collectively have rebelled against God and God gave them over to that choice and it was so destructive all around, Jesus now reverses that and makes it so possible to bring a healing to your heart so that you would want to want God instead because you discover the life, the life death, and resurrection of Jesus has made you new. And then you say, oh, I want to want that. God, help me want that. From that surrendered heart, he hands you over to that choice. And then empowers you to start making that real in your body. Is that making sense to you? You're like, oh my goodness, this is a Romans commentary, and I went out. You can tell me. I'm not going to be offended. I like it. <laughs> and that's convenient because I'm the one that's up here. So um, there's then that gap where you get to work it out. So let me show you how that gap works with grace. So I think I remember two people, two students of mine in my last church about 10 years ago. They both struggled with, uh, with uh, they were sleeping with their boyfriends. I'll, put it I'll just be straight up. One of them says, I feel trapped. I don't know how to get out of this. I know God doesn't want me to do it. I need help. I want to be, I want to do well. I want to obey and I feel stuck. Some of you that have a romantic history know what it's like to feel stuck in a relationship that is bringing harm you can't get out of. And so we as a church, we're like, man, let's just walk through this. You pursue Jesus today. And we will see what he has for you today. And maybe over time, you will be able to walk away from him. And so he walked with her. It took like two years of her letting God do work in her heart and slowly work other characteristics and habits out of her. And she was slowly reflecting more and more hunger and desire for Jesus and feeling more and more safe with him, all the while knowing what the ultimate outcome would need to be. She would need to walk away from this dude one day. But we were like, hey, the desire of your heart, you want to want God, and we trust he's got something for you right now. And if you feel like that's not attainable, let's just do what he can do today. And then she eventually walked away from that dude and became a leader in our ministry and now has a really healthy marriage with the dude that is following Jesus too. And that gracious walk that trusted the desires of her heart, she wanted to want God. It slowly worked out to reflect in her body. And that's what we want to be as a church, where you are gracious to yourself because God will slowly empower you to make faithful choices. And we can be gracious to each other when someone here is struggling and battling with sin, but they want to not want to do that. Let's support and empower them to slowly work out that surrender. On the flip side, I met this other girl, and, and, and she came to our leaders as well and was like, yeah, I'm sleeping with my boyfriend. I know God doesn't really want to do it, but we went ahead and did it. She, I remember that line. We went ahead and did it. That was the actual exact, exact sentence. I'm like, do you have any regrets? No. Do you think God didn't want you to do it? Yeah. Or do you plan to change it? Nope. So same behavior without a surrendered heart. I think that is where the grace is happening or not. Do you want to want God? Then he has lots of patience for you as you slowly begin to work it out and we need to also, because all of us have things we're trapped in and we need help with. Now, it doesn't mean we're gonna teach any differently. That first girl is under the impression of what the actual standard is. We told her what we think is best, and she agreed. It's about how that process works out. And so I wanted us to grasp, when you slow it right down, that's what it might look like in your life and in the life of the church. But there's a difference between a surrendered heart that is on its way to reflecting that in the body and a rebellious heart that may look in the body great, like Ted from Lebanon. But in reality, he's a slave to sin. He never had the obvious sin that the uh, people in my ministry were struggling with, but he is a slave to sin because he is a man who does what he wants. Up there eating Titus donuts in Lebanon without God's will. (laughs) But he will be doing that in God's will, man. Titus donuts are worth it. Okay. Um, I think that's all I want to say on that. Go to the next slide. Next one. So we have a symbol for this. This is the practice. When we enter into faith, we enter in with baptism. And in the same chapter, look at what Paul says. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Next one. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, Certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for the one who has died is freed from sin. He's describing what happens when you are baptized. You are permanently no longer identified by any assault on God you ever had or any temptation you would have to that later on. You have, in Paul's words, been transferred into the kingdom of of his beloved son. You've been rescued from the domain of darkness to now everything you would do is contextualized by that grace. The bad you will do is now contextualized by that forgiveness, and the good you will do is also by the fact that you are now a new person. So he's calling them to mind to say, remember, they're struggling with this. They're thinking, man, grace is allowed me. to get away with everything. He's like, don't forget your baptism, which means he's presuming they will recall it. This is one of my things that supports uh, conscious baptism when you kind of make a conscious choice. He's asking them to remember. They were baptized, and when they did, they were put under the water, their old self was dead, and now brought back to life through the resurrection. And now they are no longer theirs, but they are Christ. They belong to Christ. Go to my next slide with 2 Corinthians. And so now you can see descriptively, Paul will say this about you. Do you not know, if you've made that choice of baptism, that your bodies are now temples of the Holy Spirit? That's where God lives now, in you, who is in you, whom you have received from God, You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Your life is no longer your own. And that means you are freed from that crushing anxiety, but also free to live in accordance with who God wants you to be, even in your bodies. This is Paul saying it autobiographically. It's not just putting it on them. Paul is going to own it. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. The sum total of who I think I am from my inside is no longer the core basis of who I am. I've died with Jesus, but now Christ lives in me. And the life I now get to live in this little body is a piece of new creation, and I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That is not who we are. We are not our own. We don't get to be our own. We get to surrender and receive the full blessings of permanent presence with God and the the blessings of permanent belonging with God and his people and the blessings of ongoing significance as we live into this role. Regardless of how we feel, of the lies that we've been tempted with to believe in, or the state of our world, we are surrendered and we are not our own. been bought with the price and to get this it wasn't because you first became obedient from the heart it's because the king of the universe gave himself up and died a brutal shameful death to free us from the power of sin he let the power of sin do the worst thing it could possibly do it killed god and yet he overcame it so that those who would follow in his footsteps get new life and life with him if you've been baptized remember that filter your decisions and your thought processes through that choice I'm not my own, I belong to Jesus. I've been buried with Christ and now that old Anthony is in the tub. We drained it out back somewhere, I'm sure, somewhere in my last church and I'm now a new person in Jesus. And if you've not made that choice, why don't you consider it? I know that it's hard to do the whole like, welcome and invitation thing, but you should start to consider that today. To, to, to give up the assertion of your own identity and to let it be the case that you are not your own. Let Jesus buy you back. Let Jesus receive you, and so your life you live, you live to God and not for yourself. And watch the freedom come.